Good morning again, church, from wherever you are. I hope you put on your, your good jammies for church this morning and, and dressed up as we gather together. So we are, are going to jump back into the book of Genesis. If uh, you are a regular, a tender member of Grace, then you might remember that we were working through the book of Genesis before uh, all of the, this shutdown began. So um, the last five weeks or so, obviously we, we've moved out of that, and uh, then we you know, eat Palm Sunday, Easter, and we felt like it's, it's time to jump back into Genesis, um, bring a little bit of normalcy back to our life as a, a church congregation as, as best as we possibly can. And there may be a lot of you that are, are new to us, new to grace, new to, you know, you're watching around the world, or around the country. And so before we jump into, in, into our story, back into our story, I want you to find your Bible, grab your Bible. Hopefully you have one. Find it there on the coffee table or the shelf or it's on your phone or tablet or whatever it, it might be. And so let's just do a real quick review. So in your Bible, find Genesis and just look at, look at chapter 37. And we'll just kind of look at some of the, the big, the big storyline. Uh, we're going to be in Genesis 42 this morning, but I just want to get you kind of caught up. So in Genesis 37, we're coming out of the Jacob story. So Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then Jacob is uh, Israel and 12 sons. And so chapter 37 of Genesis begins the Joseph story. And so Joseph, in this story, in chapter 37, he has these dreams. He is the favorite son of his father. Um, and, and so he is more loved than the other brothers, than his 10 older brothers. And Jacob, the dad, makes that com completely uh, known to all of them. He gives him a, a glorious coat. We call it the coat of many colors, but it's the splendid coat that, that uh, Joseph gets to wear. And Joseph has these two dreams in chapter 37. One dream is of uh, his, he is, he is a, a, a sheave of, of grain, and the other sheaves, his brothers, they bow down to him. And then his second dream, he's the, the sun and the moon and the star, everybody bows down to him. So his brothers, his mom, his dad, he has these dreams where everyone is bowing to him. And he tells these dreams, he makes these dreams known to his family, and as a result, they don't like him very much. And so, when they get the chance, the brothers, uh, they plan to kill him, but then they don't kill him, and instead they throw him in a pit, and then they sell him into bondage. They sell him into slavery, and he ends up in Egypt. And then in Genesis 38, the, the narrator of our story, he takes this, what seems to be very strange, pause from the Joseph story, and he tells us the story of Judah and Tamar. And I won't retell that story this morning, obviously, but if you get a chance, review that story because our good friend Judah is going to make a comeback next week in Genesis 43. Genesis 39, we pick it back up in Egypt now with Joseph. And we begin to see Joseph's faithfulness. He's on this roller coaster of life. 
things are terrible, he's a slave, but then, but then as a slave, he's not doing so bad. He's actually running Potiphar's house, but then Potiphar's wife tries to seduce him and accuses him, and he's in jail. Oh no, now he's, now he's on the downside, and he's in jail, and that's terrible. So for over a decade, he's in jail, and, but, but he, he's, he's running the jail, right? So 39, 40, in chapter 40, Joseph interprets dreams again. He, he doesn't have the dreams, but he interprets these dreams. And then in chapter 41, Pharaoh himself has a dream. And you may remember, it's the, it's the dream of the seven ugly cows, the seven bad cows, and the seven good cows. And the seven bad cows eat the seven good cows. And Joseph says, this, is, this means famine. You're going to have seven years of plenty, seven years of famine. And of course, it comes true. Pharaoh promotes Joseph. He says, we need a man. Joseph says, you need a, you need a man of wisdom and discernment, somebody who can, who can um, you know, put in place a system to help us get through the crisis. You need a crisis manager, right? We all, we, we all understand that today in the crisis that we're all living in right now. We're all looking for who's going to be our crisis manager. And so Joseph says, that's what you need. And the Pharaoh says, okay, it's you. You have the job. And so, and so now Joseph is literally running Egypt. He's second in command in all of Egypt. He's called the governor here in chapter 42. Chapter 41 ends with the whole world Look at chapter 41, verse 57. Chapter 41, verse 57. All the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. Okay, now we jump into chapter 42. So today we're going to talk about guilt and grace and the testing of our faith. We are going to see... After 20 years, Joseph reunited with his brothers. And chapter 42 is going to begin this long, drawn-out testing that Joseph will put his brothers through in order to test their love and their faithfulness and, and uh, their character. And today we're just going to get the, the beginnings of it. We're gonna, today we're going to lay some tracks. That's my goal this morning for us. I'm gonna, I want to try to just lay some foundations that will carry us for the next couple chapters. Genesis 42. Let's read it together. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? In other words, why aren't you doing anything? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So you can see it's severe. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. So the famine has spread. It's reached Canaan. The ten are going to go to Egypt, but Jacob holds back Benjamin, the, also the son, the, the pure son, of, a brother of Joseph, both sons of Rachel. And so he holds him back for fear that harm might come to him. And that probably is because Jacob has figured out that the brothers are no good. 
He's probably, after 20 years, figured out that they did in Joseph, and he doesn't want that to happen to Benjamin. Verse 6, now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where did you come from? He said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land or, or the vulnerability of the land. They said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, no, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, we, your servants, are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, It is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you. Or else, <clears throat> by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody or in prison for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody, and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households. And bring your youngest brother to me. So your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. And they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and give them provision for the journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. He said to his brothers, My money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this their hearts failed them, and they turned trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? When they came to Jacob, their father in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, the man the, Lord, the man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, We are honest men. We have never been spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, by this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine of your households and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me. Then I shall know that you are not spies but honest men. And I will deliver your brother to you and you shall trade in the land. And they emptied their sacks 
And as they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you would take Benjamin? All this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in, put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. But he said, my son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. This is the word of God. We're going to look at three lessons this morning from this passage, dealing with our guilt and God's grace and the testing of our faith. So lesson one, God uses our guilt to expose our sin. Have you ever felt guilty? Probably the better question to ask this morning is, have you ever not felt guilty? Guilt dominates our lives, doesn't it? Guilt dominates our thinking. We do so much of what we do out of guilt, or to avoid guilt, to avoid those feelings. We eat what we eat because we feel guilty or to avoid feeling guilty. We do what we do. We make every choice we make almost is made out of um, a feeling of, if I don't do this, I'll feel guilty. So uh, guilt avoidance. Or because I feel guilty, therefore I will make this choice. We are constantly looking to assign guilt, aren't we? This is the default. Whose fault is this? Why this? Oh, that broke? Who broke that? Oh, that's not working? Well, who didn't do their job? Whose fault is it? We're constantly looking to assign guilt. We have guilt when we work too much. We have guilt when we rest too much. We have, uh, we have quarantine guilt, this is a great time of guilt, isn't it? I got all this time at home, stuck at home. I'm supposed to be, I'm supposed to be joining every online Bible study. I'm supposed to be watching every on, online sermon in church. I'm supposed to have taken 16 course, free courses that are offered by all the universities by now. I should have read 25 books. I should have written my book by now. I have so much quarantine guilt, it's, it's very pathetic, actually. And so this is the story of our lives. What do we do with our guilt? What, but the question is, why do we have so much guilt? Why, why is guilt such an overriding feeling within us? And the answer is, because we're guilty. We actually are guilty. We have objective guilt, and we have subjective guilt. Objective guilt. We are actually guilty before God. Just like in this story, the brothers are actually guilty. They are not feeling a false guilt in Genesis 42, are they? Now, false guilt is a real thing, and a lot of you feel false guilt in a lot of, you know, big, big and small ways. Um, we should not feel guilty that we're not doing more during quarantine. That's a false guilt. Some of you have been the victim of terrible things, and you feel like it's your fault. 
I brought that on myself. Or, or often when a tragedy comes or someone, someone we love gets hurt or, or even passes away, we'll say, oh, I, sh- I should have done this. I could have done th- this thing. I should have seen it coming. And so we carry this false guilt. We feel a guilt for something that we have no business feeling a guilt for. But, but the overwhelming story of Scripture, of humanity, of human history, is that we are all actually guilty before God. All have sinned. And fall short of the glory of God. There is none that is righteous. No, not one. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. We are all legally, actually guilty. We have objective guilt. And because we have objective guilt, therefore we have subjective guilt. We feel guilty. We feel guilty before God, we feel like we can't go to God. We feel like we can't pray to God. We feel like the brothers in the story do that when, when something good happens, we immediately think it's God against us. We find extra silver in our, in our, in our sack. And instead of saying, oh, wow, thank you, God, for returning my silver, we say, what is God, what is God doing to me? Uh, and we're paranoid. We become paranoid so that even God's grace become, we, we, we say, oh, God's against me. God, this is a trick. This must be some sort of manipulation. How do we manage our guilt? There's, there's several ways that we, we try to manage our guilt. One, the obvious, the obvious big one is religion. Penance, confessions. We, we create this cycle. I feel guilty, so I confess. Oh, whew. Okay, got that off my chest. And then what do we do? We sin again. We feel guilty again. We confess. We sin again. We feel guilty again. We confess. And most of us as Christians just live in this cycle. This is how we function. This is our daily life. We go to bed at night and we say, "Uh, Lord, forgive me for all my sins today. If I can't think of them, you know, I I know that you'll forgive me. And and we just, that's that's the cycle that we function within If we were Catholic, we would go to a confessional and sit in front of a priest and do it. If we're Protestants like us, we just do it on our own. But it's still the same religious cycle of guilt, confession, guilty, confess, guilty, confess. Or we might just blame somebody else. We scapegoat. So we, um, it's it's not my fault. It's their fault. And and uh, you know, Reuben in the story, didn't I tell you? Verse twenty-two. Didn't I, I told you guys not to, not to harm him. And so Reuben immediately, you know, he tries to take the moral high ground and put all the blame on the other nine. It's all you guys' fault. This is, the, this is very common. We all do this. Whose fault is this virus? It's not, it's not our fault. It's China's fault. Or it's, you know, it's, it's got to be somebody's fault. Whose fault? My marriage, my marriage isn't going great. It can't be my fault. It must be her fault. This clearly, this distress between me and my children is all their fault. Clearly, I'm not succeeding at work because of her, because of him. And so we blame others to deal with our guilt. Or maybe we just run away. We just, we just try to escape. That's Genesis 38, Judah. Judah, the, Genesis 37 ends 
with Judah kind of masterminding the, the plot against Joseph, chapter 38, Judah takes off. He's gone. He leaves the family. He goes to live with the Canaanites. Why did Judah do that? Was it an escape? Was it an escape mechanism? He doesn't want to deal with his guilt, so he runs away. God's system of guilt management is far, far better than any of those. And so we want to continue to think about that. What is God's system? How does God work in our lives? So lesson two, God uses guilt to test our faith in his grace. God uses our guilt to test our faith in his grace. Because that's what the Christian life is. The Christian life is faith in the grace of God. That's how you got saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith. So faith in the grace. And that's, that's how you are being saved. That's how you are being sanctified. Through your faith in the grace of God. So where does guilt play into that? Does guilt, does guilt play into that? And I, I think it does. Guilt does play into that. Because, and God doesn't have to manufacture our guilt. God doesn't have to, um, God doesn't have to gaslight us. He doesn't have to uh, make us feel like we're crazy. He doesn't have to manipulate us to feel guilty. It's just already there. We already are guilty. God will always expose our guilt. This is God's work in our lives. God is working to expose our sin, our debt. By the way, the word guilt in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for guilt, it is, it is the word that is connected to the, the concept of debt. So to be guilty is to be in debt to somebody. And so God is exposing this to us. God is exposing our sin to us. Look at verse 21, 42 verse 21. They said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother. Okay, are the brothers, when the brothers have this revelation after 20 years, 20 years, after 20 years, when they have this revelation, oh my goodness, we're guilty. Is this a good thing or is this a bad thing? Is this revelation of their guilt positive or negative? You might be tempted to say, oh, it's negative because God doesn't ever want us to feel guilty. No, God wants our reconciliation. God wants us to be reconciled to him. God wants us to be reconciled to each other. And so when the brothers, after 20 years, are exposed to their own guilt, when their hearts fail, as it says, this is a good thing. This is God at work in them. Isaiah 6 that Pastor Jamie read, for Isaiah, it was a vision. It wasn't a real-life experience, so to speak, like the brothers are having, but it's the same concept. God, in a vision, takes Isaiah up into the heavenly throne room and exposes his holiness. He sees the holiness of God, and in that moment, as Isaiah sees the holiness of God, he then suddenly realizes, oh my goodness, I am a disaster. I am guilty. I am a man of unclean lips. And he's a prophet, for goodness sake. So the only good thing about Isaiah, the, only, the, the best thing about Isaiah is going to be his mouth, is going to be his speech. And yet Isaiah says, even that's 
a train wreck. Even that is unclean and a mess. It's filthy. And so God wants this to be part of our journey. He wants to expose us. How does he do it? How does God expose our guilt? He does it through the situations, the trials of life, through the Word of God, obviously, and then ultimately through the cross. God exposes our guilt just like he did with the brothers here in the story. For 20 years, they've been sitting around. That's what Jacob says. Why are you just sitting around looking at each other? For 20 years, they've been sitting around, and it took this famine, this crisis, this, this worldwide epidemic, if you will, for them to, to then go to Egypt and be confronted with their guilt. And after 20 years, maybe, maybe they've suppressed it deep. Maybe it's, 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 in, you know, it's in a drawer, it's under the rug. In Genesis 38, we saw how specifically how God dealt with Judah in exposing Judah's guilt through his relationship with Tamar. And maybe each of the other brothers had ex similar experiences. We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. But they're having one here. Through the trial of life, through the famine of life, they are now face-to-face -face with their brother. But they don't know it's their brother, but they know they're in trouble. Their brother is speaking harshly to them, accusing them of being spies, accusing them of being guilty, and that exposes their true guilt. So God uses the trials of life to test us, to, to expose our hearts, to open up our hearts so that we can see he awakens the conscience through the trials and sufferings of our, li of our life. He also uses the word of God to expose our guilt. Obviously the law, the word of God's law exposes our guilt. All you have to do is read the Ten Commandments. All you have to do is, is read a, a commandment by God, and immediately you say, I don't do that. I don't do that. You, you read Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, um, and you say, do, do unto others as you would have done to you. Mm, nope. Guilty. Guilty. Um, love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. Mm, guilty. And so on and on, when we see the law of God in front of us, it exposes our guilt, doesn't it? And even grace, even the word of God, the gospel of God, even the grace of God exposes our guilt, doesn't it? Because if we're not guilty, why would we ever need grace? Why would we ever need a gospel? And so all of this funnels us to the cross. The cross the thing that we gather every Sunday to look at, the thing that should be on the forefront of your mind and heart every day, every moment, the thing that Paul said, I, I purpose to know nothing but Christ and him crucified, the cross, what does the cross say to us? The cross exposes our guilt. There is no need for a cross of Christ if you are not guilty. If I am not guilty, if we are not guilty, then why did Jesus die? To be an example? An example of what? An example of what? An example of how to, how to be a fool? How to give your life for nothing? But if we're guilty, if we actually have objective guilt, if we actually are legally guilty before God, 
then we need a substitute. We need an atonement. We need a covering. We need a sacrifice. And every time I look at the cross, it tells me the two things, the two things that the gospel tells me. It tells me that I am terribly wicked and guilty before God, but at the same time, I am undeservedly loved and accepted and forgiven by God. And so, God is trying to work this gospel into our lives, deep down into our hearts, through the test of faith. The test of faith. What will we do with our guilt? When our guilt is exposed, what will you do with your guilt? What will the brothers do with their guilt? And what will we do with grace? When they are exposed to their guilt, what did they do? When they are exposed to grace, what did they do? And admittedly, here in chapter 42, we don't get all the answers. So you got you to keep coming back week after week because this is going to unfold. We do, you, where I stopped reading, cliffhanger, right? We don't, we don't know. They get home and, and they want to go back. And dad's like, you're not going back and you're not taking Benjamin. The end. Well, that's not the end, obviously. The story will continue. But, and we'll be able to see what they do a little bit more with their guilt and with grace. But listen, Christian, this is the test in your life and in my life. Every day you feel guilty, right? You must admit that. Every day you feel guilty and every day you receive grace. Now, what will you do with those two things? Will you, will you hoard grace? Will you, will you continue to sin so that grace may abound? God forbid. Will you reject grace? Will you just say, I don't need that? Or, or, or I, don't, I don't deserve that. I'm so bad. God could never love me. God could never forgive me. Will you let your guilt overpower the grace? The testing of our faith is always God's work for good in our lives. See, as soon as we say testing, you know, because we've spent so much time in school and we've all failed so many tests, well, some of us, um, if you're like me, you, you, you just, you hear the word testing and you think, oh, goodness gracious, that, yep, God's testing us. Listen, a good teacher doesn't test their class so that the class will fail, right? If you're a teacher listening to me right now, I hope you know that. You don't, you don't, you don't test hoping to get a perfect bell curve, you know, with your, yeah, we got to have those kids that fail and those kids that succeed and then everybody else is in the middle. That's what I'm looking for, the perfect bell curve. No, we, God's testing is kind of like the, the, like the driver's test, you know, if, if as a society we want everybody to be able to drive a car, like that's our goal, we would love everybody to be able to drive a car. So what kind of system did we put in place? Did we, did we put in place a one-and-done system where if you go in to get your permit, your driver's permit, and you fail, done. You will never drive. No, we didn't, we didn't put that system in place, did we? You go in, you take your, your permit test, and you fail, then what do you do? You take it again. 
and you fail. And then what do you do? You take it again, and you take it again. And guess what? All the questions and answers are on a website, and you can look them up, and there's a little book, and you can read it, and you can study, and you can learn with the objective that eventually you're going to drive a car, and you're going to be a really good driver. And so that's God's system. He's testing us over and over and over again in order to work in us righteousness and to work in us Christ-likeness, turning us into Christ. It's not a one-and-done system, is it? If it was, we would, all, we would all have flunked and failed and God would be out of our lives, you know, three days into being saved. No. God is moving us towards repentance and trust and love for others. The testing is always meant to produce Christ in us through repentance, trust in God's grace, and love for others. Now, in chapter 42, we're getting there. We're getting there. The brothers, verse 28, they, they bring God into it. What has God done to us? Okay, that's, I admit, that's not repentance, really, but we're getting there. We're getting there. At least they're acknowledging God after 20 years. At least they're saying, you know what, maybe what we did to Joseph was actually a sin against God. Yeah. And so now they're in, their heart is in a place where they can repent they're going to have to learn to trust God's grace. They don't yet. In chapter 42, they don't yet. Or, or we might say for them, they have to, they're going to have to learn to trust Joseph's grace. Joseph kind of being the Christ figure in the story. They're going to have to learn to trust, trust Joseph's grace. And ultimately, they're being tested to see, will they love? Will they love? In 20 years, have they learned to love? You see, when, when, Joseph, when Joseph holds back Simeon, when he holds back a brother, it's not vengeance. It's not Joseph manipulating. It's Joseph testing to see, have my brothers learned to put a brother above themselves? Will they rescue their brothers? Will they rescue their brother Simeon? He puts the silver in their sacks. And when they open up their sacks, all their money is returned. This is an act of grace. The question is, what will they do with that grace? They might look at that grace. They might look at that silver and say, eh, Simeon was worth it. Let's just keep the money. 20 years earlier, they sold their brother for 20 pieces of silver. 20 pieces of silver. Now, they are offered a chance to sell their brother Simeon for a fortune in silver. A small fortune. Will they take the deal? Will they say, let's just keep the money, forget Simeon, and we're fine. But they don't. And even here at the end of chapter 42, we see that they don't. We, we see the beginning of it working in their hearts. We see the beginning. Do they love? Will they, will they go after their brother? Or will they leave him to die like they did with, with Joseph? You say, Brady, what? Okay, this has all been like, what if I'm the brother? Yep, 
and we are, and we are all the brothers. We are all the ten, aren't we? we? We can all relate. We've all messed up. We've all hurt, offended. Okay, but what if you're listening to me this morning and you're Joseph? What if you're the one who's been wronged? What if you're the one who's the victim? And so I think there's, there's some things for us to learn from Joseph in this chapter as well. First of all, our goal, Joseph's goal, our goal has to be reconciliation. Joseph's goal, I believe, and I'll admit, chapter 42 is a tricky chapter, and some interpret chapter 42 as Joseph just being mean and harsh and manipulative and, and revenge. I don't interpret chapter 42. I, I interpret it the exact opposite. I believe that Joseph is testing his brothers towards reconciliation, towards showing them and believing in them that they can change, showing them that they can change and believing that they can change. How? How does Joseph do that? How do you do that? How do I do that? How do we move towards reconciliation when we have been the victim? Number one, we have to forgive. And I believe that Joseph has already forgiven. If you look back in chapter 41, so flip back a page. In chapter 41, verses 51 and 52, Joseph had two sons. Do you remember this? And he names his first son Manasseh, which means forget. God has made me forget my hardship and my father's house. And he names his second son Ephraim, which means fruitful. For God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. And I believe that what that shows us is that Joseph has already chosen to forgive. He's chosen to not literally forget, as in he never thinks about it anymore, but forget in the biblical sense, which means to strike it from the record, to strike it from the account, to strike it, legally strike it, to forget. And so Joseph has chosen to forgive the debt, to forget the debt of his brothers. Why? Because he has received the grace of God. How was he able to do that? Because he had received the grace of God. And so then, number two, he can trust God. He can remember the plan of God. And there's this interesting spot in chapter 42, where verse 9, the brothers show up, they bow before him, and it says, and Joseph remembered his dream. Oh. You see, everything that follows, his whole interaction with them, comes from him remembering the dream. That God is in control, that God is going to move them towards being together, that God is going to restore them as a family. And when, God, when Joseph remembers that, then he begins, number three, the test. The test. You say, Brady, am I allowed to test people? And, and my answer is yes, in a, in a sense. But listen, we, you cannot test those who have hurt you and offended you un, unless you search your heart through numbers one and two. If you have not forgiven 
and you are not trusting God, do not even begin number three, because the test will only be vengeance. It'll only be manipulation. It'll only, it'll only be in order to harm. But if you have forgiven, and if you are trusting God that whatever happens, they change or they don't change, this is for their good, not mine, we can test relationships, can't we? But listen, how do we test? We test by giving grace-filled opportunities for change. How did Joseph test his brothers? By giving them an opportunity to change. Why is he hiding his identity? Why, is he not, why didn't he immediately say, Oh my goodness, you're my brothers. Oh, see, I told you. I knew you'd bow to me. Ha ha! Death! Why didn't he do that? Why did he stay hidden? Because he knows that if he reveals himself, they'll just play along. Or at least he has to suspect that. That if he reveals who, who he is, then, then, their, then their repentance will be fake. It'll be bogus. And so he has to withhold his identity. He has to put them through the test to see if they have changed and to help them change. And so what does he do? He gives them grace. He go, did, you, did you notice the story? When Joseph, Joseph's first offer to them is, I'm going to lock nine of you up and send one of you home. Did you catch that? And then three days later, he flips it. He, he gets them out of jail and he says, okay, here's what's going to happen. Nine of you go home. One of you stays. Why nine? Because nine means they, not, nine loads of grain, more food. He puts the money back in. He's being kind to them. Why? To see what they'll do with it. To see what they'll do with it. What are they going to do? Are they going to go home and stay there and leave Simeon here to rot in jail? Are they going to bring their brother back? Does their brother even exist? Or have they murdered him too? Have they sold him off to some other group of people? Joseph needs to know this. He needs to know what's going on in their hearts. He gives them a grace-filled opportunity for change. We talked about this last summer um, with our Love Your Enemy series. In the words of Jesus, turn the other cheek. What does turn the other cheek mean? If you slap me on my right cheek, I will turn to you the other also. What am I doing? I'm giving you an opportunity. Oh, you hit me? You insulted me? You dishonored me? Let me give you an opportunity, a grace-filled opportunity to love me, to honor me, to kiss me. Do you remember that? I, I'm, not, I'm not turning the other cheek so that you'll hit me. I'm turning the other cheeks to give you an opportunity to kiss my cheek, to show me honor. You dishonor me? Okay, here, here's your chance. Honor me. Be nice. Okay, here's a chance. Right? And we do that. We give those grace-filled opportunities. Lesson three. Whew, Brady, how do I do all this? What's the motivation? What's the power in my life for any and all of this? And the answer is, lesson three, Christ in us removes all of our guilt and produces all of our faithfulness. Listen, church, this is only possible because all of your objective guilt has been removed. Romans says, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you believe that today? Do you believe that all of your guilt before God has been removed 
dealt with, covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. And not only that, through your union with Christ, in union with Christ, you have also died with Christ on the cross, removing the power of sin in your life. The old sin nature is dead and gone. So the, the guilt doesn't, even, even though you keep sinning, you're going to sin today, you're going to sin tomorrow, you're going to sin on Tuesday, but, the, but it doesn't stick. It doesn't stick. Your, your file has been burned. It's not, it's not that God has erased the file of charges against you and now he's starting a new file. No, there is no new file. It's destroyed. It's gone. All of your objective guilt is gone. So then how do I deal with the subjective guilt? How do I deal with all these feelings of guilt? I run back to the cross. I run back to what Christ has already done. I remember what Jesus has done for me on the cross, that all, every debt is paid, Colossians 2, that Jesus has taken the charges filed against us, the charges against us, and he has nailed them to the cross. He's nailed them to the cross. And so in doing that, he has dismissed those charges. And through his death and resurrection, he has defeated those charges. He has conquered that sin. He has destroyed that penalty of death. And so now we don't have to live with objective guilt. Like we saying in Christ alone, no guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. Do you believe that this morning? Will you allow it to speak to your subjective guilt, those feelings of guilt? Now listen, there is still guilt. there's no guilt between you and God. No guilt between you and God. But listen, there is still guilt between you and, and the people in your house. There's guilt between you and the people you work with. There's guilt between you and your uncle or your brother-in-law or whoever. There's still horizontal guilt between each other. And we have to constantly be dealing with that, confessing to one another, repenting to one another, making amends to one another, making it right. This is, this is the work of Christ. Because of the finished work of Christ, we can do the continuing work of Christ in, in reconciliation, in bringing justice, in bringing justice into every relationship that we have. And this Life of Christ in us also brings this faithfulness that God is looking for. You say, Brady, if it's a test of my faithfulness, if it's a test of my faith, well, what, what, if, what if I blow it? What if I'm not faithful? Listen, here's the answer. Christ is faithful. Your union with Christ means that you have already passed this test. You have already passed this test. We work out our salvation because God has already worked out our salvation. We, will we are going through the test to prove that we have already gone through the test because Christ has gone through the test. Listen, we are already justified, already glorified, Romans 8, Ephesians 2. We are already seated in the presence of God at the right hand of God. It's a done deal. You will not fail this test because Jesus has not failed this test. And your life is linked to his life. So now we can welcome the testing of our faith. Now we can say, bring it, God. Expose me. Rip me apart through the suffering, through your word, through the cross. Rip me apart. Rip me open. Allow me to see my guilt. I'm not scared. 
I'm not scared of you exposing my guilt because I know that you have paid for it, that you have delivered me from it, and that you are using it now to drive me to grace, to drive me to Jesus, to drive me to his forgiveness, to drive me towards love. Do you believe that this morning? I hope that you do. I pray that you do. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing the song, The Power of the Cross. And the reason why I, I chose this song is because it speaks, to, it speaks to the objective nature of the cross. What the cross has literally done in removing our objective guilt. So after I pray, we'll sing that last song. And then we will, I'll come up and, and dismiss us. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are the God who has a way better plan for dealing with our guilt, a plan that doesn't include our running away from it, that doesn't include us blaming everybody else, doesn't include some sort of cycle of penance. God, instead, you have dealt with our guilt once and for all by Jesus' life, by Jesus' death, and by Jesus' resurrection. God, I pray for anybody in the sound of my voice who has not placed their faith in the reality of Jesus. I pray for anybody who's still carrying that heavy load of guilt and they have nothing that they can do with it. God, I pray that today would be the day that they lay it down at the cross and receive the life of Jesus, receive his forgiveness, receive his cleansing as their substitute. And God, for all of us who are in Christ, May we allow the little moments of feeling guilty and the big moments of feeling guilty to drive us to your grace, to drive us to what you have already accomplished, and then, and then allow it to work in us the work of love, that we may love and forgive and reconcile with others. And we ask this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.